Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the doodle curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. Today, I'm bringing you my conversation with somebody from the world of poodles. This is a real treat because if it wasn't for the poodle, doodles wouldn't exist. The one thing all doodles have in common is a poodle ancestor. Some doodles are three quarters poodle or more. So if you're into doodles, I think it's absolutely necessary to have a good understanding about the poodle side. Too often doodles are talked about as though all they get from poodles is a low shedding coat and some intelligence. Those are not bad things, but poodles have their own charm and can contribute a lot more than just that. The other thing to be aware of is that the going thought among the top poodle breeders is that no reputable poodle breeder would ever sell to a doodle breeder. Join any poodle forum, talk to any poodle breeder that's showing or competing with their dogs, And you're going to hear the same thing. Doodles are very controversial in the world of poodles. So expect that in this episode, you're going to hear some criticism. I invite you to set aside defensiveness and join us with an open mind, a willingness to challenge preconceived ideas, and an eagerness to stretch, grow, and learn. I've got Lisa Kimberly Glickman here. She is a poodle breeder. She's the president of Versatility in Poodles, vice president of the Ottawa Valley Poodle Club, and regional director of the Poodle Club of Canada. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us on the Doodle Kisses podcast. It's my absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you being here because it's not easy to get a poodle person to come to a doodle podcast. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it's, uh, it's a touchy subject. But Lisa and I were just talking and one of her passions is education. And I I love that. And I think that this podcast will hopefully bring a lot of new knowledge to our doodle lovers listening in. So I'm curious, uh, Lisa, what is your dog story? So um, we never had dogs growing up because I'm allergic to dogs. One year when I was about nine years old, my parents got a one and a half year old second hand three quarter poodle, one quarter cocker spaniel mix um, with a lovely long tail. And her name was Daisy. And we had her for about a year before my allergist at the time insisted that we had to give her away. I had too many asthma attacks and so forth. Um, She lived with a dear family friend and lived to be 14. And then when I moved away from home at university and not under my parents' roof, I started to get dogs. (laughs) I always loved them. And I got my first shelter dog then. And I continued acquiring rescues and having asthma attacks (laughs) until I got Sats, who was my first standard poodle. And I got her in 2004. What's her name again? Sass. Sass. Her name is actually, yeah, her name is actually Belfleet Glicks Sarsaparilla. C-D-R-E-C-G-N-H-I-C-T-H-D-B-C-X. Oh, I love all those letters. <laughs> this lady does things with her dogs. Yeah. So what drew you to the poodle in the first place? Was it just the fact that it didn't shed or was there something else about it? Well, 
like many people, I was like, I wasn't going to buy a dog from a breeder because, you know, that was just wrong. I was going to go rescue a dog. So I did um, repeatedly. And the last dog that I had that was a rescue was a beautiful, beautiful dog, half golden retriever, half duck toller. I was her fourth home. Yeah, no, she was gorgeous. I mean, she had all the white markings in all the right places, that beautiful red coat and the size and shape of the golden. She was striking. And her name was Ozzy. And I was her fourth home. And she had many, many temperament issues. Because of the temperament issues, I absolutely had to take her to training school. And when I made it to the third level of class out of basic obedience classes and into novice in my class was a lady with a standard poodle and I really didn't know poodles I had a friend in university who had two white poodles who I thought were pretty cool but I never really thought about poodles but the way the dog looked at her the way the dog listened to her and learned like a new new thing the dog would have it you know in three tries and it looked beautiful and the rest of us were still struggling so I said to myself that's my next dog I'm you know I was in my 40s I'm like I'm gonna spend the money. I'm going to, well, first I said, I'm going to find a poodle rescue. Huh? <laughs> and, um, and then, I, then for about a year, and then I was like, I'm not going to find a poodle rescue. I'm going to have to buy one. Uh, so I researched it and I got very lucky. There was a cancellation on a breeder's wait list for a show quality puppy. Um, at first I was going to have to wait till the next litter. And then she called me and she said, well, I got a cancellation. Um, and I've got this 10 week old puppy and I drove down and snatched her up. Uh, and I've always liked bigger dogs. Um, mm-hmm. I did one of my reviews was a long-haired dachshund Pomeranian cross. Ooh. Hardest, excuse me, hardest thing ever to to um, housebreak. <laughs> but she lived for. Uh, she was almost twenty-one when she died, and she was a lovely, sweet, sweet dog. And and so whenever I see long-haired dachshunds, I kind of swoon. So it, downsizing again is always possible. And I've met some really nice minis since I've gotten involved in 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 poodles. So, um, and my mom had a toy poodle, but I just tend to like bigger dogs. So man, my preference is for the standard. Yeah, I'm with you. I big dogs make my heart swoon. <laughs> right now I have a foster puppy that's smaller than my biggest dog, but because he's just bouncy, he seems bigger. He's a Bernese poodle mix that I'm fostering. And he's just, he's taking up a lot of space with his personality. Yes. His personality is very big. <laughs> so uh, do you have a preference? What, besides the size, is there anything about the standard that you like more than a toy or a mini? It's really anecdotal because speaking from my own personal experience, uh, First of all, I, I'm so clumsy. I, I think I would accidentally kill a toy poodle if it lived in my house. <laughs> like I would just trip over it and land on it or something. Uh, my boyfriend moved in and he has a miniature poodle mix. We think probably terrier miniature poodle. And he's about 14 pounds. So he does get out of the way. So that's a good thing. Um, he's certainly very easy to pick up if I need to. My, you know, If I have to pick up one of my big dogs, and sometimes I do, it's a little harder. I'm five foot tall. <laughs> So sometimes I think as I get older, it would probably be a good idea to get a smaller one. In Europe, they have a size called Moyenne, which is between a miniature and a standard. That really appeals to me. As it is, my standards are all on the small side. And I tend to keep, for my own future breeding dogs, I tend to keep girls that are around 21 inches. So on the smaller end of the scale, 32 pounds. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know. There's a... Sh- the short answer. You mentioned the Moyenne, that is a uh, European size. But in the U.S., 
between the mini and the standard, there's not really a gap, right? Legally, if you're going by the three recognized kennel clubs, there is no size between standard and mini. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can talk about the breed standard uh, if you like, but uh, when people talk about their dogs as, you know, king poodles or, or moyens or dwarves or teacups or anything like that. That's mostly marketing, mm-hmm. unless it really is somebody who brought a moyen over from Europe or from, or, or has, a, in some cases, people purposely breed inter-variety. So they'll breed a standard to a mini um, to, to bring down the size or to bring in different features they want. Minis tend to hold brown better than the standards, for example. There's not that many browns in the standards that hold their color anymore. So there may be different reasons that they would do that inter-variety breeding, and then they'll end up with some dogs that would qualify as standards, some that will qualify as minis, and some that are too small to be standards and too big to be minis, and then technically they're mans. I see. Although, can they actually show dogs that have been inter- bred that way in the u.s they are yes if they're within the size range that they're supposed to be Mm -hmm. a lot of miniature breeders will have minis that are too small and they can be toys and be shown as toys conversely a toy breeder may have a puppy that is too big and is fits within the mini size standard so they'll show their toy as a mini that does happen i mean the there the judges are allowed to get at a wicket and measure the dogs at the at the withers Uh uh-huh um, and I'd kick them out if they're not the right size. It doesn't happen very often. Uh, and sometimes people that see their mini is going to get too big to be a mini will show them when they're young and finish them. And then they get become oversized. The same thing will happen with other dogs that have an upper size limit, like Shelties. Mm-hmm. Um, the breeders will show them uh, before they become out- oversized. Okay, that's interesting because I had, I had understood that you know, a big mini is still a mini and you couldn't show it as a standard and a really small standard is still a standard and you can't show it as a mini. But you're saying that could technically still put it in a different category. Yes, if they are within size, because the sizes are very specific for all three varieties, the breed description is effectively very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, A miniature poodle, if you see a photograph of a miniature poodle and a standard poodle Side by side, you should technically you should not be able to tell which one is the mini and which one is the standard. Mm-hmm. A toy is different. The toys do look different, but a good mini and a good standard to the judge's eye should look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. They should have the same balance, the same profile, the same stop. Yeah, interesting. The health issues though are different between minis and standards, as I understand it like, you know, patella things and minis poss- are possible, but not as much in standards. Um, is that correct? I feel like there's another thing, like either SA or Von Wild brands that's more common in one versus the other. Okay, so do you want me to address the health concerns that standards yep. face or the health sure. concerns that minis face? <laughs> in which order? <laughs> you pick. <laughs> so, well... Okay, so I'll start with standards. I'm more familiar with them. Uh, the most common issues are auto, autoimmune disorders, such as sebaceous adenitis, which is a skin condition, Addison's disease, which is a failure of the adrenal glands to function correctly. Uh, bloat is not, they don't know how it's inherited. Um, it's not really considered an autoimmune issue. It's a torsion of the intestines, which is similar to colic in horses. It's another potential that's common to many deep chested breeds. We don't see it to the same degree in minis 
and toys. Mm-hmm. Uh, less common are seizure disorders, various kinds of autoimmune blood disorders, hip and elbow issues, and eye issues. The breed is the same type of that all dogs and all mixed breeds face. And within superbreds, there are some diseases that are specific only to that breed or far worse in that breed. Uh, but that's not the case with poodles um, because the things that they have are things that all dogs can have. Although there's a higher incidence of SA and Addison's and bloat in standards, let's say, uh, I can't think of a breed, Shiba Inu. Mm-hmm. In a five-year uh, study of cases at the University of California, there was no difference between mixed-breed purebred and purebreds uh, in the prevalence of commonly inherited disorders. So designer-bred dogs were being seen with the same hereditary conditions that it was assumed crossbreeding would eliminate. They had the same rate of hip dysplasia, epilepsy, cancer, hypothyroidism, eye disorders, etc. Now, this hasn't gone unnoticed by standard poodle breeders and aficionados. There's a group called the Standard Poodle Project, and I've sent you the link, that evolved from research by the late Dr. John Armstrong. Uh, This group is very dedicated to the standard poodle and was very concerned about the genetic bottleneck in the breed. And they looked, actively looked for scientists who wanted to collaborate, who wanted DNA samples for research purposes. Uh, Some initial DNA work looking at haplotypes was done by Dr. Lorna Kennedy in England. And then uh, subsequently, a great deal of research was done by Dr. Niels Peterson and his genetics team at UC Davis in California. And they created a genetic mapping test that looks at haplotypes and alleles. And their goal was to solve this essay and Addison's mode of inheritance puzzle. Because people did just, we, we couldn't figure out it was... If it was on the genome, was it a given that they would inherit it? Could you avoid it by breeding a certain way? Mm-hmm. And the research showed that if you bred away from Addison's, you tended to breed towards SA. Wow. And uh, it seemed, yeah, it seemed to be fixed in the breed. And uh, there must have been a number of things, perhaps also epigenetics at work that was triggering it. Mm-hmm. One of the people who's involved in the Standard Poodle Project and involved in um, this early research was Natalie Green-Tessier, who started by advising uh, Dr. Peterson and actually um, contacting, contacting standard poodle owners to submit DNA, uh, DNA, DNA of uh, poodles with SA, poodles with Addison's, and dogs who were, let's say, 10 years old and didn't have either or hadn't produced any offspring with any autoimmune disorders at that time. So they were able to map it out and basically they found that the only thing they could suggest was to breed for diversity. Out of that, Natalie Green-Testier started um, a company, which is called Better Bread. And uh, she imports the data from UC Davis and uses the same kind of breeding calculation tools that are used by zoos that have small captive populations. Sorry, Mm -hmm. tripping over my words. Uh, Like that they use for cheetahs, for example. So that zoos use between zoo to zoo to make sure they don't do inbreeding. Uh-huh. And this tool is now, at this point, there are a ton of breeds involved, but it started with standard poodles. Some of the breeds that are included now, if you go into better bread, are golden retrievers, Labrador retrievers, Akitas, English Mastiffs, Mastiffs Shebas, Bursher Picards, Barbets, Dobies, Porzois. There's a ton of breeds. So some are fairly rare and some are really common, like Goldens and Labs, that are now on board with this particular research. So it's not just a matter of looking anymore at 
autoimmune disorders, but looking at how can you uh, breed a more diverse dog, knowing that four different haplotypes and greater diversity away from the cluster of common seems to have or should have some protective features. Uh, and many poodles and toy poodles are also now a part of this research. Mm -hmm. And I've sent you a link to that as well for your listeners so they can have a look. Thank you. For miniature poodles, from what I understand, I've never owned one. They tend to have mostly eye issues, which can be tested for in advance and avoided. And luxiting patellas, hip and elbow dysplasia are found in poorly bred dogs. And miniatures are much more diverse than standard poodles, so they tend not to have as many autoimmune issues. We're not in the same proportions, mm -hmm. but they do exist in the size. Okay. So, um, and then small dog issues like in glands and teeth. Uh, because they're in better shape genetically, they're in better shape health-wise, but people are starting to cross many with standards more and more and more. So um, now you have to test for things that the minis didn't have before. And basically, there are standard poodles in toy and miniature pedigrees, and there's toys and standard and miniature pedigrees and miniatures and standard and toy pedigrees. There's no one disease that's only found in one of the varieties anymore, unless it's a dominant inheritance. So basically, it's uh, buyers and breeders have to be vigilant. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That really, I mean, I think this is so important for people looking to buy doodles from breeders is make sure your breeder knows a lot about poodles because if they're they've got minis and they've got standards and they've got all these different sizes and they're not testing and don't know can't answer questions about these diseases run <laughs> and find another breeder <laughs> or or think about a pure breed poodle of some variety with with somebody who also does the testing yes absolutely we we all know that certain genes can be doubled up and cause disease expression and sometimes the dog is just a carrier which is fine but if you debris to two carriers because you didn't test, then you're looking at, at puppies that now potentially have two copies of the gene. In some cases, in the case of DM, which I didn't mention earlier, um, DM is, is a heartbreaking disease that you just don't know. The dog, six, seven, eight years old before it expresses itself and what your is dog it? falls apart. It's caught. Um, oh, my God. I'm going to mispronounce it. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's like, like muscular dystrophy. It's degenerative myelopathy. Mm. It's a spontaneously occurring adult onset spinal cord disorder that affects dogs, and it's similar to Lou Gehrig's. Mm. There's a degeneration of the white matter of the spinal cord and the peripheral nerves. It's heartbreaking. And all the retrievers have it. And that's the reason I started testing my poodles because I had actually wanted to use a stud dog owned by a breeder of, of one of the retrievers uh, breeds who also bred poodles. And she said, I won't let you use my stud dog unless your dog is clear for DM. And I was like, poodles have DM? In fact, they do. Mine weren't carriers, but since then I have met people whose poodles have DM and carry for DM. Hmm. Um, it's not as common. But it's, it sounds like it's a simple genetic test. It's a very simple genetic test. And the reality is that you could be breeding your dog for five years before it expresses itself and not know if you didn't test your breeding dog. Yeah. That's the worst about those diseases. Like epilepsy too may not come out till age six. And, um, you know, so many cancer doesn't necessarily pop up in a six month old. No, and, and unfortunately, there's, we can't test for everything. Yeah. So I, 
I always say due diligence. I, I didn't breathe SAS. My foundation girl, because of Addison's disease, which I was so concerned about, I did not breed her till she was four and a half years old. And I bred her to a male that was four and a half years old and had no uh, Addisonian puppies and litters he'd produced at that point. So, you know, I, I waited. I wanted to be sure that what I was doing was as safe as it could be. And I still don't breed my dogs till they're three. I love that. I always advise people looking for doodles, don't get a puppy from an 18-month-old mom. <laughs> don't, because some people breed at that young. And I always say, you know, there's a lot of things you're not going to see until that dog is somewhere over two or older. So wait till it's had a litter or two and kind of seeing what, you know, what's come out of that dog. I mean, there can be great first time moms, but if they're first time moms under the age of two or three, I'm not a big fan of that. Yeah, I agree. And some, you know, when breeders are needing to make money to survive, it makes sense that they're going to start right away as soon as possible. So, you know, I, I appreciate when I hear about breeders that wait because their goal is the health of the progeny and the health of the mom and trying to make sure that they're producing healthy, healthy dogs. So since we're talking about breeding, how did you just go from I'd like a standard poodle to I'm going to breed poodles now? Okay. So when I was looking at dogs, um, I was teaching part-time. I didn't have a full-time job yet. I had three children and I saved up for my dog. She was over $2,000 in 2004. It was a lot of money. <laughs> and I thought, what if I want a second one? And I thought it'd be really fun to breed that second dog myself. Mm -hmm. So I'd already bred budgies and parakeets and ferrets. And, you know, I'd raised a lot of abandoned motherless animals at the SPCA. And so when I bought my foundation bitch, I researched heavily. I wanted to find a healthy dog to start with. I asked the breeder and, you know, a lot of breeders would talk to a novice like me and just say, forget it. But she was great. She said she had made a verbal contract with me. She didn't even have a written contract. She said it was very difficult for novice handlers myself to finish, put a championship on a brown poodle. Mm -hmm. They don't traditionally win very well. And I wanted a brown. Um, she said that I had to put a minimum of two titles on her beyond the canine good neighbor certification in order to prove her worth to the breed. Love she it. said I had to do all the required health testing. And I had to accept her input on the choice of a male. And I had to give her back a puppy from the mm. breeding. So she basically said to me, you can do it, but you have to invest in showing her and trialing her and getting titles and doing the health testing. And you have to give me back a puppy. And I did all those things. So at four and a half, Sass had five puppies. And one of them is Nala, who's now 11 and a half years old. A little more than a year later, I bred her one more time and I kept mango. So I now had three poodles at home. And because I had to train Sass to breed her, I got hooked. Well, I kind of got hooked when I was training Ozzy, the uh, crazy golden retriever duck toller. Mm -hmm. uh, but Sass was so easy to train and oh, so bet. smart and so pitiful. I was like, she made me look good. I mean, I was a total buzz. <laughs> I have two left feet. In fact, to the point that my rally teacher told me to paint an L and an R on my shoes when I go <laughs> into a trial. Yes. She, I, she did tell me that. Uh, so, you know, Sass made me look good. And um, now 
is a bit of a clown, so she made me look less good, but Mango was brilliant. And every single dog I kept since Sass has a championship. And if it's a dog I can't keep because after Mango, I had three dogs, three standard poodles in the house and a disabled husband and five children. So I, um, at that point, I started to find foster homes and they live in their own homes, but come back here for holidays and puppies. So, um, yeah. And so that got me hooked into training. Breeding got me hooked into training. And um, I, I breed so that I can have something for the future. That was always my MO. And because I got very involved in therapy with, uh, with Nala, because my husband was in a wheelchair and quite handicapped, I would bring her when he was in the um, rehab, I would bring Nala with me and Mango. And so I ended up getting very involved in therapeutic work. And now I breed with that as a goal. And uh, my puppies are, are mostly going into situations where they're going to be service or therapeutic dogs. Oh, beautiful. If there's, you know, I, I love Labradoodles and Golden Doodles, even though they're just a box of chocolate and you can't say anything about all of them, that's true for each one. Um, and there probably are a small number of really great breeders that do the health testing and all of this. But one thing that I, I don't see enough, and it's my criticism from the inside, I call it, because I think I have a right to criticize something I love. <laughs> um, I, one thing, one criticism I have is not enough doodle breeders are doing dog activities with their dogs. They're not training, they're not putting any titles on their dogs. They're not, you know, even therapy certifications, maybe not even CGCs. There's some that do CGCs, but not a whole lot of other doggy things to kind of prove the dog's worth. And I'd love to see more of that. I'd love to see, hey, look, we, we produce dogs that you can train for obedience. And here's an example. Here's the mother <laughs> that I, you know, here's these three mothers that I breed or dams or bitches, or I don't know what the right word is. Um, and our stud dogs all have their CGCs and one is a rally novice, has a rally novice title. Like that would be so much more meaningful, I think. And I wish, that's my wish for any doodle breeders listening is that that becomes more of a common thing. It's something I was definitely planning to address when you got to asking me what I thought. <laughs> I've been having a lot of fun doing these podcasts, interviewing interesting people, learning along with you. I don't really want to stop. However, producing a podcast takes time and money. I'm willing to put in the time, but I don't have podcast production skills. And so we have to pay for a professional to put these podcasts together. This is where you come in. If you're getting anything out of listening to these podcasts, please consider supporting the Doodle Kisses podcast. If every single person who listened to at least one episode gave $1, we could cover the production of several episodes. If you gave $5, well, we'd be done fundraising for the year. Go check out our GoFundMe page. The link is in our show notes. Now back to the learning. Um, there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding, uh, misunderstandings about poodles, right? A lot of people see this as the froofy dog that contributes the non-shedding genes to the doodles. But outside of that, they're useless and they don't do anything. And they're, I don't know what they think. So what kinds of things have you heard about standard poodles, for example, or poodles in general that left you shaking your head because they're so false? I can say for starters that almost everything that gets said is true some of the time. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we know that stereotypes exist because there's a certain ring of truth, truth to them. But that being said, different lines of poodles do have different temperaments and different varieties have different temperaments. And any breed as a whole has tendencies, but there's variation and nothing is true 100% of the time. So the usual racial slurs, as I call them, I hear are that they are frou-frou, that they are aloof and unfriendly, that they are very sick as a breed, that they are very nervous, that they are reactive and attack other dogs, that they are impossible to groom and that they bark too much. Hmm. And I feel like, you know, any exaggeration of breed's original purpose doesn't always fit with our lives in the city very well. Poodles were meant to guard a perimeter. And they do that very well, even if your perimeter is a three-bedroom bungalow. And uh, But I would say that the sheer numbers of uh, standard poodles doing therapeutic work around both countries and, um, you know, runs very contrary to the poodle being aloof, for example. Mm-hmm. Not supposed to jump on you. You know, uh, they are supposed to be polite. They're supposed to offer their paw while gazing adoringly up at you for a <laughs> chin scritch. Um, and that that is a correct poodle. Uh, temperament and everyone acknowledges how intelligent though they are although I'll, I'll you know I do hear like oh I you know I didn't think poodles were this friendly or I didn't think poodles were this calm or I didn't think they were this quiet well I don't know which dogs you met but mine are like this so <laughs> yeah yeah awesome and so they were bred to guard perimeters tell me a little bit more about the history what else what were they you know, originally bred for, and how has that changed perhaps over the decades? Okay, so standards are the oldest of the three varieties. Uh, Miniature and toy were developed from standards, and it dates back to the late Roman period. Um, There are steles and other imagery that are very much poodle-like with a sort of lion clip uh, that you see from, from really late Roman period. Uh, the variety we know now as a standard poodle was definitely well established across all of Europe by the 16th century. Um, it was the original versatile hunting dog. It was a flushing water dog, which was a partner that trapped waterfowl with, that were in nets and go, go out and get them, um, especially in Germany. They also guarded sheep and homes, the perimeter. Uh, they were used for by armies in wars. And aside from hunting them, poodles were used in France to send out truffles. And they're still used. There's actually a um, a, a group in uh, somewhere in the U.S. I, I'm thinking Virginia, but I could have the, the state wrong. That uh, that do hunt mushrooms. All three sizes became really popular as a circus dog, and that's really France that popularized the caniche. And poodles have been the AK in the AKC top ten in place seven or eight since 2013. I, I don't know how many years they've been in the top 10, but many years. But we have to remember that that includes all three varieties. When they put Poodle in the top 10, it's it's because they put all the numbers of all the varieties together. In the Canadian Kennel Club, Poodles had the number four spot for 2018, and it's been a number four for a while. Uh, and they're related to the Portuguese Water Dog and the Barbet and the Irish Water Spaniel. Um, but so their original really known job was as a retriever uh, but for years they weren't eligible to participate in retriever trials because the american kennel club had slotted poodles into non-sporting which meant they weren't eligible mm-hmm. to compete with the sporting dogs and the uh, united kennel club actually has the poodles in the gun dog group group which is 
the correct place for them. But I personally don't think anybody's in a rush to try and get the CKC or the AKC to move them back into sporting because um, it's harder to win group in sporting. There's a lot more breeds. Uh-huh. And when they're in the non-sporting group, yeah, yeah. There's Because you have to, to win best and show, you've got to win group. Right. And if you're in a small group, it's easier to win group. And if you're in a giant group, harder to win group. So I don't think the handlers and the breeders who do a lot of showing are like, yeah, yeah, put us back where we belong. But there were a group of people, uh, really, really primarily Jack Harper, who still breeds under the prefix of Tudoros Standard Poodles. She now lives in Oregon. Uh, she really wanted to bring poodles back to where they came from. There was a, also um, a fellow Canadian on the East Coast whose son actually breeds poodles now. And she hunted with her standards and her, along with Rosalind Beeman and Elaine Whitney, uh, these are all Canadian women who uh, trained their mini poodles. Um, they were able to convince the AKC and the CKC to allow poodles to run in water retrieving tests. And as of 2002, the CKC has allowed poodles to compete along with the retrievers because they understand that it's historically accurate, even though they're not in the sporting group. And so now you go to a, to a trial, a hunt trial, you may just see a poodle in full show coat bringing back a duck. Hmm. That's great. And I've given you, yeah, it's, it's great. To, and a couple of my dogs do hunt, by the way. I have, a, I have one out in Alberta. They send me pictures of her with grouse in her mouth. And they're, they're thrilled with her. They actually got her, um, I gave them the poodle that looked like she would be the best scenting dog because they told me they were, they were mushroom collectors. Oh, so I thought they were going to train her for mushroom work. They didn't tell me they were hunting because they thought I would be opposed. <laughs> and then, they took her hunting and she was just a natural, of course, and was bringing back the grouse. So they sent me pictures and I was like, of course, she's a poodle. She's, you know, they were bred to retrieve waterfowl, although grouse is not a waterfowl. Um, I've sent you a link also from uh, poodlehistory.org, which was curated and created by another Canadian, Emily Kane. Um, and that website is a, an amazing resource if you want to know all about everything poodles have done in history. It's, I mean, I've just touched the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I feel like I need to sing Oh Canada for all of the Canadians. <laughs> That's something. Of course, I'm Canadian, so there may be some unbelievable people that have have made things happen in the U.S. And I, I know there were some. Uh, there was a, a woman who bred brown poodles who uh, is fairly recently deceased, and her kennel. She did quite a lot of, of hunting with her poodles, and and sort of at PCA was the person. Um, and I'm going to get her name wrong, so I'm not going to say it. I'm terrible at names. Uh, there are Americans who contributed. I just am more familiar with the Canadians, of course. Okay. So My husband is Canadian. <laughs> no disrespect to Americans. That's totally okay. And the PCA has a website, which I'm sure also has lots of information. I didn't send you that. Okay. And I will put all of these links in our show notes for everyone, all the listeners to um, go through when they're done listening. Um, so what you're saying about the history of poodles and the things that they're good at suggests that they're a high energy breed and they're working dogs and they do well with the job. Um, well, this is the irony. Even the CKC refers to them as a dog that's not suited to live in a high rise. And I kind of disagree. I mean, minis are definitely more active. You'll see a lot more minis and agility. Um, and apparently they're smarter too. I can't say because I don't have one. But 
my standards anyways are couch potatoes in the house. However, if they see me get out their vest to do therapy or the collar and training bag I use for obedience or the equipment and the leash I use for agility because every job has a different set of tools, they go nuts and they're ready to work and they can't wait to work and they have different commands for the different jobs they do. So they are a very willing working partner but they are also quite content to do nothing. Mm-hmm. The only thing is I tell people who, who are looking to buy a poodle is there are differences in temperament between litters, but apples don't fall far from the tree. We'll look at the parents. And if you have a very active adult um, and people, for example, looking for agility or hunting poodles tend to want a higher drive dog with a high prey drive. And a, those dogs may not be that well suited to somebody who stays at home and, and is a writer and is working on their computer all day. You're going to go nuts. The dog's going to be bringing you a ball every five minutes. So you have to look. There's, there's always a, ver- a variety of temperaments, and you have to look for something uh, on that range of energy and on that range of fear and courage that suits what you want to do. But they are very versatile and, and can do many, many jobs. But you have to look at your lifestyle, what you think you want to do, and get the kind of poodle that fits your life. And hopefully the, the breeder that has that kind of poodle and wants to work with you. <laughs> Yeah, I brought that up because sometimes I hear that some people expect that the poodle is doesn't have energy or like doesn't can't do cool things and work. And I don't know where they pick that up because anyway, so I wanted to point out that a doodle can't I mean, a poodle is could be an energetic dog. And and what you said makes a lot of sense, because that's what I understand, too, that different lines are going to be known for different things of for having more drive or having a certain type. And so it's important to know where you're poodle is coming from and if you're into if you're trying to buy a doodle make sure your breeder knows something about where the poodle is coming from and see if you can meet the parents so that you can see you know is this like a really high energy kangaroo poodle or is this the kind of poodle that likes to work but can chill out in the house you've got to get to know the parents i think it's key and and i know what your needs are i try to identify your own needs because there are people who breed specifically for high drive dogs and there's people who breed specifically for uh you know the more couch potato end of the spectrum so you need to get what's going to work for you so i'm wondering with some of your breeding dogs in uh what you called it foster homes i think doodle breeder called called doodle breeders call them guardian homes um do can people meet those dogs that are in your foster homes if they oh, want to meet sure. the parents oh yeah, oh yeah yeah well it's <laughs> Absolutely. Either um, my, you know, if somebody's going to be a guardian, it's called a guardian home as well. Somebody's going to be a guardian home for one of my girls or boys. They they're going to, you know, they're a friend. They're going to work with me, and um, and sometimes uh, they live a couple hours away from me. So I'll always check with them, but I'll say, hey, this person that lives in your area is interested in seeing meeting uh, kismet because they're thinking about having a kismet puppy, and those owners are normally very open to meeting the people that are going to possibly own one of their dog's puppies. Mm-hmm. And um, whenever possible, people also come here and meet my gang that live here because then they're going to meet the grandmother, the great-grandmother, the great-great-grandmother. They're going to meet other family members that live here as well. Great. And are all of your standards brown standards? Um, no, <laughs> Kismet, who I just mentioned, is a blue, uh-huh. and um, Breeze, who's Wendy's mother, 
is a black. Uh, Wendy is my up and comer at two and a half years old. Um, but Nala and Sasser Brown, Vigo, Guinness, and Enzo uh, are brown. Rebel is brown. I have more brown than anything else because I started with brown. But as I got into it, I realized it was um, very difficult to have diversity and stay in color. So this last litter, I bred to a white uh, service dog, a working service dog, um, to my working therapy dog, who's Cafe LA, and the pu puppies are all black and blue. So people who are you know, on the list who would really like to have had a brown knew that in order to get the diversity I wanted, I wasn't going to have brown puppies. Mm, and yeah. they're okay with that because yeah. they wanted the temperament. So they, they had to sacrifice the color, unfortunately, to get the temperament this yeah. time. Hopefully down the road, that won't be the case. But uh, my, my, you know, my, I've, I've learned as I've gone along. And now I ask people not to neuter, not to castrate their dogs. And, and so, you know, I've, as I've, it's been a learning process for me too. And one of the things I learned was that color is going to have to take a back seat to health and temperament. Yeah. Oh, it's nice to be able to get the colors that's your favorite, but I can see how that could really limit your pool. Yep. <laughs> and, and I want to point out for listeners, in the poodle world, the color is brown, not chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been corrected about that. Yeah. It, it's funny, though, but even within the brown, there are a range of colors. So um, there's brown, there's cafe au lait, there's silver beige. and. Uh, in the like with the black there's black there's blue there's silver there's then you can say platinum i suppose so it's the same kind of generation of dilution genes but yeah people who call them liver or chocolate that's not looked that's looked down on <laughs> it can be a chocolate doodle but not a chocolate poodle <laughs> no that's marketing yeah <laughs> okay so yeah. So I originally reached out to you, Lisa, because one, I'm interested in poodles insofar as they're a big part of the Labradoodle and Golden Doodle history and present day, you know, um, and two, because I'm interested in the organization that you're a part of, which is Versatility in Poodles. Um, how long have you been involved with VIP? And tell us a little bit about it. Uh, so I'll preface this that I'm speaking as a private individual and not as a representative VIP. So just so listeners know, I'm not speaking on behalf of VIP. Um, the board of directors doesn't necessarily agree with my personal opinions and or should they. This is, I'm just speaking on my own. But uh, I joined VIP around 2007. Um, a friend had introduced me to this great and extremely helpful organization. And I did a little volunteering. I designed their decal that you can put on your car of a tracking poodle. It was based on uh, one of our members' uh, dog of the fabulous Chase, who was the first tracking excellent poodle in Canada and could do urban tracking. It was quite a wonderful creature and the father of Mango. And, um, and I've been their vice president. I was uh, terms are two years. So I was vice president in 2017 and 18. And I've been president in 2019 and my term will end in 2020. And with regard to uh, about VIP. So VIP has an interesting, a really interesting history. Um, it was founded in 1992. It's a nonprofit 501c3 organization. It's devoted to poodles, all three sizes. The primary purpose is to improve the health and promote the many talents of the breed. Um, 
And basically in the fall of 1992, a number of poodle owners happened to attend the same obedience workshop. So these were all people, not silly breeders, but owners who were working in obedience and they compared notes and they found out to their dismay that all of them had at least one poodle with a serious health problem. And they all agreed that something needed to be done and they founded VIP. And the idea was that VIP would meet this need of supporting people who had dogs with health problems and raise money for research. So we provide support for first-time owners. We do a huge amount of sponsoring and co-sponsoring of seminars on topics related to health and performance. We set up educational booths at public service and canine events. Two years ago, I organized an event called Canine Advanced Resources in Education, the CARE Conference here in Montreal. I had um, nine or 10 guest speakers and VIP had a booth with uh, information for people. Um, this past year, I just got the treasurer's report. We gave over $5,000 uh, for research. Um, we're involved for hemangiosarcoma research, which affects goldens and labs and poodles. Uh, we're actively involved in improving the welfare of poodles and other dogs. Uh, we provide volunteer support and funding to aid poodle rescue. We work with other organizations. Um, uh, there's a wide range of educational materials, uh, ranging from general information for the new poodle owner, uh, poodle buying information, health bulletins, information about Addison's. And I've sent you the link for that, um, for our website, which has, uh, where you can download all these documents for free that are quite helpful. Um, for members and subscribers, there's newsletters, there's an online uh, forum and group. Um, and the newsletter has timely articles about health and buying and training. And we have a versatility certificate program that's designed to encourage owners and breeders to develop the many talents of their poodles. And it has three levels, versatility certificate excellent and versatility certificate masters. And they are increasingly difficult to acquire. And it's a mechanism to get give people recognition for high achievement in obedience, tracking, agility, confirmation, field, temperament, and so forth. They have to, uh, owners applying don't have to be members of VIP. Uh, the dogs do have to be poodles, however, and they have to, the owners have to send in copies of the various certificates their dogs have earned. Hmm. That's really cool. What we offer, yeah, it's a, it's a, it truly is a wonderful organization. I, I'm just thrilled to be uh, able to volunteer for them. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. So anything else about poodles or standard poodles that you think um, our listeners would benefit from knowing? Um, well, I, I, I feel like I should read you the breed temperament from the standard. Yeah. Uh, just because... It's, I think it's a great, it's a great temperament description. So in the U.S., the uh, standard says, carrying himself proudly, very active, intelligent, the poodle has about him an air of distinction and dignity peculiar to himself. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> he has an air of distinction and dignity peculiar to himself. Um, Stanley Corrin said, poodles walk around looking like they just won the lottery. <laughs> I think Stanley Corrin put that really well. You know, that's, if you see a poodle and they don't look like they just won the lottery, that poodle's having a bad day. <laughs> I feel like I imagine a crown, a crown or a tiara on the head of a poodle as they walk around <laughs> proud. With their winning lottery ticket in their yes. paw. <laughs> uh, 
And the Canadian standard says the poodle is known for his intelligence, his lively, mischievous sense of humor, and his willingness to please. The poodle is a people-oriented breed that refuses to be ignored. And I think that's also a really, it's different than the American standard, but it's also really accurate. Um, I have a poodle here, Chili. She has her own hashtag on Instagram, really Chili, because she just cracks me up. If she feels I've been painting too long and ignoring her, and I'm a painter, she'll uh, get up with her head beside my palette and put her head between my palette and my painting so that basically I can't paint without her head in the way. <laughs> She'll jump up in the air and sit and look at my painting as if to say, it's good enough. Let's go do something now. <laughs> That's hilarious. She's hilarious. And she does all kinds of things like that. And, and they all do. They do. They do just, they just crack you up. Um, and then finally the United, uh, United Kennel Club, which is a, a North American organization, has um, has their temperament description, which uh, which I really like. And they say another essential characteristic is proper temperament. The breed is noted for its high intelligence, trainability, and sense of humor. Poodles are highly social and require human companionship and regular close interaction with family members. Because of their great intelligence and the joy they take in human companionship, they excel in performance events of all sorts are extremely affectionate with children. So we have three breed standards from three organizations you can get a championship and do performance under. And they all have a slightly different take on what the temperament is of a poodle. And I think all three um, descriptions are quite accurate. And your breeders should know that because they are a wonderful dog. Yeah. I'm thinking of my, my Bernie Doodle right now, the foster. And he does sound like he kind of hits some of those descriptions himself. Um, I wanted to point something out that I don't, may not have been clear to listeners. You said CKC a few times. and what you're referring to is Canadian Kennel Club. And I want to make that clear because in the U.S., there's sort of a throwaway CKC, which is like Continental Kennel Club. That doesn't mean anything. So just to clarify, this is the Canadian Kennel Club when you say CKC. That's correct. Yes, it's a, it's a legit organization. <laughs> yes, I, I, like the immediate thought in my mind was, what? Finally realized what you meant. <laughs> Okay, so for the most part, the poodle world, and probably I'd say 98% or more, the poodle world is very much against the intentional breeding of poodle mixes. Do you feel comfortable speaking about that? Yes, but I just want to remind the listener again that I'm speaking as a private individual. I'm not representing any poodle organization. So um, if you get pissed at somebody, you can write me an email. These are my personal thoughts. And you can be honest. You, could, you can, you know, say things that doodle people might not love. That's okay. I want your honest opinion. Oh, if you knew me well, you would know that I have a very low tolerance for anything but. So I'm going to be candid. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, that being said, look, my impression as a poodle breeder who knows other poodle breeders is that ethical and dedicated purebred breeders spend thousands of dollars and thousands of man hours researching pedigrees, health histories, meeting dogs in person, going to shows, going to trials, and trying to produce a puppy that fits their own vision of a perfect puppy of their breed. Responsible breeders are doing this for the betterment of their breed and the preservation of poodles that they themselves want to own and want their heirs to be able to own. I'm going to die one day. I'm hoping that Glick Standard Poodles, that some of those genes are floating around and I did something good for poodles. So when we see an unscrupulous 
person. Breeding dogs with serious temperament or structural faults with other untested, less than wonderful dogs. Yeah, we get our knickers in a twist. (laughs) That's what I say. And I get my knickers in a twist. Many of the mixed breed breeders are far better at marketing and promoting, and they charge more for their puppies than we do. And they have, I have much higher expenses. I have much higher expenses. And they get away with it. When I hear that somebody just spent three and a half thousand for a Bernese Mountain Dog Poodle Cross, oh. it doesn't make me happy. Now, oftentimes, these breeders have done none or very minimal genetic testing, or they've done clearances. They are happy to push to show this, you know, three hundred page printout that shows that their dog has been cleared for one hundred and fifty. That's an unreliable DNA service, and they mm-hmm. exist. They're just like you can buy crap anything. There are legitimate services that double screen and are accepted on OFA. And there are others that will give you the certificate, but that test is not reliable or test for things that your breed won't have anyways. So of course they're going to be clear. So if a DNA service is not on OFA's list of accepted companies, excuse me, I'll call bullshit on that result. And the breeder is not legitimate would be Look at the parent breeders, the parent breeds, I should say. Whatever parents are using for their mixed breed, you at the very minimum should be doing the required OFA testing and the national breed club's recommended tests for your breed because the OFA actually doesn't tell you to do as many tests as your national club will. Mm-hmm. And some mixed breeders haven't, they haven't researched pedigrees. They haven't gone to shows. They haven't met the breeders of their dogs or looked at the ancestors. They just put two dogs together that they were able to keep intact. And sometimes those dogs were kept intact by breaking their direct contract with the purebred breeder. Sometimes those dogs were gone under sketchy circumstances, bought a six-month-old secondhand from somebody and just kept it intact. All different ways of getting and keeping a purebred intact. But if you're breaking the trust of the breeder who sold you the purebred to begin with, for me, that person is already behaving in a reprehensible manner right off the bat. So if your breeder of your mixed breed doesn't have a really good way to explain where they got that purebred from, if you feel that there's a little red flag in there, and I feel like there probably is most of the time, that makes me really uncomfortable. Do I want to buy a dog from somebody who got a dog secondhand and saw that they could charge 2000 or 3000 or 4000 or even $800? for a dog that has no testing because they wormed it because they wormed it and they gave it the first shots and it's really cute so that you know and then on top of it some are adding merle into the mix now oh. merle yeah. yes, talk about that <laughs> I, have to, I have to mention it because merle more studies have shown scientific studies have shown that merle comes from the uh, british isles from the herding breeds in the british isles so shetland sheep dogs and so forth. So other breeds that have Merle are dogs that came from the British Isles originally, historically, were bred from those dogs, or it's been introduced. There never used to be Merle Dachshunds. There never used to be Merle Chihuahuas. It was introduced. Now, Merle, people who know Merle know that Merle has health implications, serious health implications. And if you don't do it correctly, if you don't know your genetics, and it can be hidden, you can have an apricot colored dog that is Merle and it doesn't, it's not um, expressed. So you don't know that the dog is Merle. You can end up with a deaf and blind dog, a dog that reacts very badly to certain vaccines. 
and so forth. It's not traditionally found in poodles or retrievers or many of the other breeds that are now being used for poodle mixes. So if you have a breeder breeding Merle and you just love those flashy markings, be careful. Um, and, you know, again, some of these breeders are breeding just for flashy markings or for colors or for very large dogs or for very small dogs with no thought as to the long-term health implications on the puppies they produce or the families those puppies go home with. So when I see that, when I see a dog in my training class with horrible cowhawks, now cowhawks are okay on herding breeds because they need to turn quickly. What are cowhawks? Cowhawks are, you know how a cow stands and its back elbows on its back legs almost touch when it's standing? Yeah. But if you look at a horse, when a horse stands, it's straight and square. Mm-hmm. Well, golden retrievers stand square. Labrador retrievers stand pretty square. Poodles stand square. Why would a mixed breed of those two dogs have their elbows in the back touching? That's cowhawks. Mm-hmm. And it's, yes, if you have an agility dog like a Sheltie, they are allowed to be cowhawks. Border Collie should be a little bit cowhawk because they can, they can move on a dime. That helps them with turns, but it doesn't help them in other areas. And a poodle should definitely not have cowhawks. And some of the dogs are so incorrectly made. So they may have a very bad U neck, which is a neck like a sheep that is very curved. They may be very, um, pigeon-toed. Their feet turn way out, towing out in the front. Instead of standing more or less straight, their feet toe way out. Well, those feet that toe out, they're towing out there because the elbows aren't aligned properly. And if the elbows have problems, often the shoulders have problems. So when you see dogs, when I see a dog like that, no matter how beautiful the markings are, there's an Australian sheepdog mix in one of my classes, and he's adorable. But I look at the way he's made, and my heart hurts because he is going to break down. Now, mm-hmm. if he never does anything more than walk, and I mean walk up down on his street for eight years, he'll probably be okay. But if he gets fat or the breeder tries to do more with him, he is badly made, and he will break down, and he will hurt. And I'm not even talking about hip dysplasia. Elbow dysplasia is a degenerative disease that hurts too. So this is why we get our knickers in a twist. We look at it and we think it's got to be only about money. There's little evidence to the contrary for these breeders. There's little evidence that they're doing it for any other reason. What is the loftier goal? What are the benefits to the canines or the future owners? The mix may or may not shed. It may or may not be biddable. It may or may not match. It may or may not be hyper. It may or may not develop Addison's SA hip dysplasia, early onset cancers, especially with Goldens and Bernese mixed in. There does not appear to be planning or foresight going into these breedings. So, of course, it's really frustrating to see them in abundance in every dog park, doggy daycare, outnumbering the breeds they were mixed from. Everywhere I go, the mixes are outnumbering the purebreds they were mixed from. And people feel superior about it. And I'm not really sure why, why they are so proud and feel so superior and why purebred beaters are demonized. I, I, I have, I have a personally, I have a really hard time with that because I really care. I'm really passionate about the breed. I put a lot into it mm-hmm. and I care what homes they go to. And I care if my dogs break down and I take back my dogs if they break down and rehome and rescue organizations are exploding with mixes. That's what they get back. They don't get back a lot of purebreds. I could not find a purebred poodle when I was looking and I'm allergic to the mixes. I had to buy one because they don't come back to, even to, to, to standard poodles in need, which is a great rescue group in Canada that I work with. Standard poodles in need, it's very few poodles. They get a lot of poodle mixes mm-hmm. and who pays for it? The shelters, the rescues, the new owners. Where are those breeders when it's time to back up their puppies and their owners? They got all these money for these puppies. Where are they when it's time to help out, to give back? 
or to do yeah. better in the future. Where are we at conferences? Where are they at education? Responsible caring breeders take back our puppies. We replace sicker problem puppies. We don't breed those two parents again if there's been an inherited problem. When I see somebody with a mix that has a problem and I'm like, contact the breeder and tell them your dog has Addison's. Oh no, I can't. They stopped breeding. I can't get a hold of them. They didn't give me a forwarding address. Mm. I know where every single one of my puppies is. Of 15 litters. I know I can get on the phone and call an owner. And they can call me. So we change, we learn, we grow, we change our practices as necessary because we're in it, because we're passionate, we're in it for long term. And I think for the mixed breeders, mostly just produce puppies that sell. I think that's their motivation. And so that's why I don't like it. I don't like that they don't back up their dogs. I don't like that they don't care enough to put some money into it. And, uh, you know, I have a job. My poodles do pay for themselves. I'll admit the puppy money pays for showing and it pays for some of my vet bills and pays for some of my, my training, but I don't live off my dogs. And I suspect that some of these people that are breeding these fancy dogs, it's a very nice source of income. Oh, sure can be. And so if you're listening right now and you're starting to feel a little bit defensive or you know, thinking my, my breeder was excellent. I just want you to take a deep breath and listen to the parts of this that make sense and are true. I think the doodle is a fad, a fad that's lasted quite a while as far as the labradoodles. It's not something that just came up five years ago. You know, it's been around for a while. My oldest doodle passed away in January and he was almost 13. And so it was happening before that. I just want you to take the, take the information and use it to raise expectations. Use it to demand of breeders that they raise their expectations. Now, I'm a little bit of an apologist when it comes to doodles. I hear the criticisms, I share some of them. Um, and I also think that over the years, there have been some breeders who got into it, maybe not knowing as much, but they have raised their standards. So I can point to a number of breeders that do all the health testing, or at least really close <laughs> that do, you know, annual surfs that do, and surf is an eye test for those of you listening, that do hip testing and, and have some of their data on OFA. Um, the OFA site has just now um, approved the Australian Labradoodle as a, as a type before it was just mixed breed or hybrid. It was listed as that and now it has its own type. So I don't know if you, Lisa, are familiar with Australian Labradoodle versus the regular Labradoodle. Have you heard of that or the difference? Whether my input in terms of advice or hope for Labradoodle or Golden who wants to start breeding. Yes. Like what would you, is there hope for Labradoodle or Golden Doodle breeders who want to start a foundation of healthy, healthy dogs or who are already breeding and want to, you know, add poodle or retriever lines, you know, is there hope for the purebred breeders to someday be open to that provided they can meet certain criteria? So I'll preface this again, that I'm speaking as a private individual and not as a representative of any breed club, but I would say they'd have to start by being legitimately responsible breeders in a way that they have not been to date as a group. Mm. So. Um, uh, so that means a number of things. Doing required tests for uh, a chick, uh, canine health information certificate as a very minimum, as suggested by the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals for each parent breed as an absolute minimum. 
heart tests and full eye testing, which needs to be repeated yearly, as you said. Both Goldens and Poodles, for example, have juvenile cataracts, and it can be seen by a registered ophthalmologist with a specialized equipment. Um, or your regular vet can't see that. Hips and elbows have to be done after the age of two, when the pup has finished growing, not per limbs. That's true of both retrievers and poodles. Um, you know, and it, it is expensive, but you've got to put your money where your mouth is. Sometimes, you know, you, you wait and they don't turn out to be what you should breed. They don't pass one of their health tests or so they're missing qualities that you consider essential for your breeding program. So you've spent all this money and you can't recoup it, but that's what good breeders do. So it shouldn't be about money for any ethical breeder. Somebody has to develop a group, a real breed standard. And if you want to know what a real breed standard is, look at them in your parent breeds and figure out what of those things in the two breed standards of your parent breeds do you want your new breed to have. Something that's been vetted uh, by a, no a national organization like the AKC um, or, or the UKC. I mean, new breeds get approved. They do get approved. And, and that way, uh, the breeders are aiming for something consistent, which is what purebred breeders do. They want to produce a dog that looks like its parents and behaves like its parents and is predictable. So if they want to be treated as respected breeders, then they should breed something consistent. And if they want to breed something consistent, they need to know what that is. They need to have an image of what that is. Every breed started from something somewhere, from somebody's vision. Over the centuries, you know, dogs were bred and refined with specific purposes to be a lady's lap dog, to be a guard dog, to be a boar hound, to protect the flock or herd the cattle. So what is a doodle supposed to behave like? What's it supposed to look like? What colors are acceptable? What's their eye supposed to look like? These things, which might not really be important to a pet breeder, are important to a purebred breeder and give a purebred breeder a certain legitimacy. And temperament is, as I read the temperament standards to you, it's pretty key to a purebred. Temperament is a very large part of what that dog is. And then when you breed a litter, you keep the very best puppies that have those qualities. If you have one puppy in that litter, only one that is exactly what you imagined, that's the puppy you go forward with and all the rest are just pets. And then you look for an unrelated puppy that is exactly the same in terms of those best qualities and you keep that very best puppy. And you do genetic testing to make sure they are not closely related and do all their health clearances. So, you know, if you want a perfectly non-shedding coat like a poodle with a happy-go-lucky disposition of the best-natured golden retriever, you can then you have to only breed puppies that turn out that way and neuter everything else and have a code of ethics, a real code of ethics, and stick to it. Yeah. And then finally, and this brings back to something you said earlier, you've got to start putting titles on the parents. You have to prove that they're worthy of being parents until those dogs can earn a championship based on being a purebred. Then they can earn performance titles. Every organization allows mixed breeds to earn performance titles. Every organization. So again, put your money where your mouth is and go beyond a novice title, which is the most basic. Go beyond a rally novice and a CGN. Get a rally excellent. Get an RAE. Get a tracking title. Get a, you won't be able to get a water dog certificate if your dog's not purebred, but you can do a lot of other things. You can do barn hunt. You can do... Um, I think you can do nose work. Uh, you can certainly do therapy work and prove those things by doing the work that with the parents, because otherwise, how do you know the puppies will have the aptitude? They're really cute and you say they have the aptitude, but where's the proof? It takes time, it takes money, it takes training and effort, but what makes your dog worthy of reproducing? 
Why, you know, with the shelters exploding, being cute, well, they're not really exploding. I take that back. They're full of dogs that have been imported from other countries. But that's another conversation. Yes. Oh, man, I could I could I have so many more things I could talk about with you right now. As we're <laughs> going close on time, I did. I want to bring your attention to just you, Lisa. I'd be curious of your thoughts separately from this episode. Right now, when we're recording, it's November 4. And next week, I'm going to be um, airing an episode where I interview somebody from the Australian Labradoodle Association of America. I think I may have said that backward um, or not, the ALAA. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts as I talk with this particular Labradoodle breeder about what goes into making a Labradoodle and their thoughts about being a pure breed or not. Um, yeah, maybe we'll have to chat about that later. But next week, if you have a chance to listen, it comes out on Monday. Um, so I guess, you know, when you're mixing like a first generation poodle with something else, it's categorically impossible to have a standard because you're going to get a litter of variety. If a doodle breeder wanted to make higher and higher generations and do, as you said, pick the best representative from each litter and keep that one and get everything else neutered, there could be potential for creating a breed that has a certain look. Um, yeah. At the same time, I think a lot of people who like doodles like that variety and like, ooh, what's this litter going to show us? <laughs> and what kind of different ones? So in some ways, it's probably not possible to get that based on what people want and the way people are breeding. Um, and in some ways, it is possible if a group wanted to have like a work toward a very tight standard um, and there's my mind is mixed on that even though you know part of me thinks that's the way we should go well in terms of in terms of asking what it would take for the for these uh, breeders to be respected that's my opinion that, that that's what they would need to do I think you're right I think that that's the only way that someone can really show themselves like, hey, look what I'm working on. Here's the titles I put on my dogs. Here's my health testing. Would you be willing to support my efforts and, you know, like sell me a standard poodle to continue what I'm doing? Here's, I can show you. Uh, and that might not even be enough until the, they've reached a certain status. But I think at the same time, without having quality starting dogs, you can't reach that status <laughs> in the first place. So it's a, it's kind of a, Catch twenty two. Yeah, I agree. I, it's I. I don't know what the solution is, but um, I think if if there are some individuals, a group of individuals with very clear vision, uh, they will be able to create a breed. But the fad of mixing poodles with everything under yeah. the sun is not going to go away anytime soon, unfortunately. And um, well, I'd say unfortunately because because of of the way in which the worst representatives do it. Yeah. And that's what you're going to see. That's what you're going to see the most of is, you know, let's say there's 10 breeders that are doing a good job. Well, there's 250 <laughs> that are just breeding for fun and profit. And so what are you going to see more of is the ones that are just kind of, hey, let me breed my poodle with my friend's lab. Yeah. It's not going to go away. They're just, they're too much. They're too cute. They're too popular. There's, they have too many fine qualities. Uh, and I mean, and now some of my groomer friends actually, you know, have a seminars where it's a doodle cut. 
a doodle clip, like it's an official thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I know, you know, you have to know, are you clipping a doodle with a curly coat or a doodle <laughs> with a wavy coat? It'll be interesting to see in the next 20 years. Hopefully I'll be around to see what happens. I'll be curious too. And I want listeners to take this away. Listen to this, not defensively, but use the knowledge to set your standards high and expect more from doodle breeders. Um, and don't buy from doodle breeders that don't meet some minimum criteria of health testing and, and who you can't meet the parents ever. You know, like set your own standards high because as your buyer standards get raised, so will breeders have to raise their standards in order to sell puppies, right? So, and if they're not up to that, they'll quit breeding. And those that are up to it and think, hey, I do want to do a good job, will will do that good job. So thank you so much, Lisa, for being here. I appreciate it. I appreciate that you took the time to talk to a doodle person <laughs> um, because I think this education is really important. Thank you, Adina. It's been my absolute pleasure uh, to chat with you and hopefully your listeners have learned a little bit more about poodles and are a little more interested in the parent breed and uh, I do invite inquiries to versatility in poodles we're very happy to answer questions as an organization and um, I wish you all the best in your future endeavors and uh, see you in cyberspace Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.